Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 129, Art and Spaceflight. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. We're lucky enough to talk to a number of astronauts on this podcast. Some of them are experienced astronauts with one or more flights under their belt. Others are about to embark on the journey for the first time. Nicole Stott is one of those experienced astronauts. She retired back in 2015 after completing a long-duration stay on the station for Expedition 20 and 21 in 2009, along with a spacewalk, and a space shuttle mission STS-133 in 2011. And this comes after an extensive career at NASA, working across multiple centers in multiple disciplines. After retiring, Stott turned her attention to paintings and art as a way to communicate the feelings and emotions she experienced on orbit and as a way for kids to engage in human spaceflight. So, here we go. A fascinating conversation with Nicole Stott about her spaceflight experience and the importance of art as a form of expression and as a form of inspiration. Enjoy. Nicole, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Nice to be here. Thanks. Really appreciate your time. You're here to record uh, one of our video series called Down to Earth, right? I am. And for my flight medical. <laughs> Oh, of course. <laughs> Every year. <laughs> so flight yeah. medical, that means, that means you know, after retiring as an astronaut, you still have to come back every once in a while for, for medical reasons? Yeah, they try to keep track of us. So okay. um, they'll get us back here once a year, and they do pretty much the same test they would do on you if you were still here as an active astronaut. Um, so I guess biological, just making sure you're healthy, almost kind of like a physical or is it deeper than that? It's, it's a lot like a physical. It's, it's like a really good physical. And then <laughs> like this time, for instance, I'll be doing a DEXA scan to look at my bone density and some ultrasounds and, uh, you know, things like that where they're doing, they have this thing called a longitudinal study. I can never say it <laughs> where they want to look over time at how, you know, how your body is changing since flying in space. And and if they can do that with as many astronauts as possible, they might actually be able to figure something out. Yeah. <laughs> Data's good. It we've is, we've it realized is good. that yeah. from talking to a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of scientists. So having that sort of long-term data, even after space flight, because you've had a long-duration space flight and you've had a short-duration space mm -hmm. flight. So, yep. so having that data will be nice. Well, today, since you're here, I really wanted to go through your story, if that's okay. okay. From, 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 from your childhood all the way through ah, what you're doing now. I'm old, I'll have to remember <laughs> it all. Yeah. Well, it says you were, you were born in New York, but I guess Clearwater, Florida is more like home. Yeah, um, my parents, I was born in Albany, New York, but they moved to Florida when I don't even think I was a year old. So uh, I don't think I can respectfully claim Albany as, as a hometown, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I grew up in Clearwater and now we're back just down the road in St. Petersburg after 20 years in Houston, yeah. All right, so yeah. so you, you like Florida then? I love yeah. Florida, yeah. yes. Yeah, I have uh, I have family there too, so we visit. We're actually going up for Christmas. Ooh, very good. Um, it should be nice. Not, not, not your white Christmas, but I don't know, a beach Christmas is not too bad. It isn't. <laughs> All right, so, so what's interesting is you, um, from childhood, it seems like 
uh, going, I guess I'm going to skip ahead to your college uh, education because you um, are went for aeronautical engineering at uh, Embry-Riddle, Florida. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you always know that you wanted to go into engineering? Did you have some sort of maybe spark of inspiration that led you in that direction? Well, I I grew up, my I mean, my parents, very thankfully, and we try to do this with our son too, just shared what they loved with us. And my mom, a very creative person, you know, if I was going to get to a ballet lesson, it was because my mom was going to get me there. And <laughs> my dad built and flew small airplanes. And so as a family, we hung out at the local airport pretty much every weekend. And uh, that's where I think I developed a love for flying. I knew I wanted to do something that had to do with flying. At the time, I knew I wanted a pilot's license, but I didn't think I wanted to be a pilot for a job, hmm. you know? And so I, I really got to the point where I was like, wow, I'd like to know how things fly. And that's what took me down the engineering path. But I'll tell you, when I was getting ready to graduate from high school, uh, I didn't even, I didn't know what engineering was. Oh, really? I really didn't. I. I honestly didn't even really know if I for sure was going to go to college. And I saw most of the people that I was that I was hanging at that were my best friends in school. They were going off to college and um, and so I decided to do the same thing. Uh, sadly, my dad had been killed in a small airplane crash when I was 16. So, you know, having kind of this, you know, like path of, okay, you're going to graduate from high school, you're going to go to college. I don't know. I wasn't really thinking about it hmm. that way, um, but figured out. Want to know how things fly? Talked to somebody who told me about aeronautical engineering. Uh, thankfully, they didn't tell me how difficult aeronautical engineering was because I don't know <laughs> at that point, you know, if I was even trying to think about going to college, would I have chosen that? And it was the best thing. I mean, it, it ended up being the best thing because I think, you know, if you want to know how airplanes fly, why in the world would you not want to know how rocket ships fly? And Embry-Riddle was right down the road. I mean, right down the street from, or I guess I should say up the street from Kennedy Space Center. Did you have some time in planes, uh, even through middle school, maybe high school, just, just flying maybe small aircraft? Or we're really, I mean, you were just interested in it. No, no. You know, with my dad, uh, like I said, we were out at the airport. And if he was building right. an airplane, he built two um, small, you know, that you actually fly in, like uh, aerobatic airplanes. He built a bi- oh. two biplanes. One was a Starduster II and one was a Skybolt. And so as a kid, I was strapped into the front cockpit of those things and going out and flying with him all the time. And there were other people at the air park that I would go flying with. And so it was just, just part of this normal thing that I did as a kid. And when I graduated from high school, I didn't go straight to Embry-Riddle. I um, stayed local and I went to the local community college, or at the time it was St. Petersburg Junior College, and it's, that's now St. Pete College. And they had this really great program called Aviation Administration, which was kind of a, I don't know, it was kind of an aviation business program, but you could earn your private pilot's license as part of the program out at St. Pete Clearwater Airport. And so I'm like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I'll go there. That was the draw. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, I can work on my pilot's license, get that while I'm at this school. Um, it was local. I didn't have to move away at the time. And uh, and I could do all the, you know, the little bit, the basic courses that you have to do, regardless of what degree program you're going for. You know, I could do that while I was there and then transfer over to Embry-Riddle. 
Look at that. Did you, um, it seems like you were definitely into planes, but I heard a little bit about rockets too. You said how, how rockets fly. Was there was there interest early on or maybe that sparked a little there, bit later? I, there absolutely was. I mean, I know you're looking at me across this table thinking there's no way she could possibly be old enough to have watched that first moon landing, but um, <laughs> yeah, that laugh. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit yeah. that out. <laughs> um, no, that's totally fine. And laughing is good. Uh, it's real. And so I, I watched that with my family. I mean, I have vivid memory of sitting in front of the black and white TV with the grilled cheese sandwich for some reason and uh, and watching the watching people on the moon. I, I mean, it was incredible. And then we would go outside and look at the moon and talk about it and stuff. But I'll tell you, it was a real long time uh, before I thought that this idea of astronaut could be real or pursuing anything really to do with, with rockets could be real. And uh, because it seemed like, especially with the astronaut job, that, oh, that's something other special people get to do. <laughs> you know, why should I think that that's anything they would pick me to do? And, yeah, thankful, ultimately, to mentors that encouraged me. Yeah, because you eventually, I mean, you didn't go to NASA first to be an astronaut. You yeah. ended up at NASA through some other some other avenues. I think you were in the private industry for a little bit um, yeah. before going to NASA. Yeah, and I was in the private industry. And it ended up being a great job. I, for about a year and a half, worked right out of college at uh, uh, Pratt & Whitney down in West Palm Beach. Mm. And they were doing really cool designs on advanced engines. And, you know, I mean, it was really it was super top secret. You're off in this, like, bunker office that has three levels. I mean, you don't know if it's day or night when you leave and stuff. And it was really interesting to see that side of engineering. Because for me, what it made me realize is I didn't want to do that side of engineering. It was interesting. I mean, that was what you would consider very, like, hardcore engineering uh. was being done. And I always knew I was a hands-on person, um, and I discovered it more while I was there. I'm very thankful for the people that like that kind of work and want to design really cool things that way. Um, but I got that job. I had applied to NASA at Kennedy Space Center for one of their shuttle operations jobs. Hmm. And at the time, they weren't hiring. Uh, and so I took the job at Pratt & Whitney. Really, I mean, I enjoyed the time there and learned a lot. And while I was there, I got a call from the folks at Kennedy Space Center, and they were they were putting together a whole new kind of pool of young engineers. We were it was just after return to flight, after Challenger, and um, and it was awesome. It was like this group of young engineers coming in from all over the country, and they were plopping us into the orbiter processing facility and the launch control center and all of the active operational places where you would have like physically be able to go touch the space shuttle. And oh, wow. to me, there was, I mean, there was like nothing better than that. Yeah. Now, well, what surprised me is you um, you said you applied, but they, they weren't hiring at the time. That means, I guess, during your time in college, even before you got the Pratt and Whitney um, uh, deal outside of college, you were you were interested in working for Kennedy. Even, oh, even, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because while I, I mean, while I was at school and, you know, I was studying about how airplanes fly and then, you know, we had this jet and rocket class and, uh, I I took that and uh, and then of course you know the space center is right there <laughs> you know I mean you can't miss it and things are going on there and uh, and while I was at school I mean that's when um, you know sadly is when Challenger happened and mm. but then there was always the buildup I mean you always knew that NASA was getting things back together getting you know ready to start flying again and uh, and that was exciting to me and. I, I just really wanted to work there and so thankful that 
you know, they tracked me down <laughs> at Pratt. And, uh, and what's cool is, like, you know, a lot of the work that was going on at Pratt & Whitney was directly associated with the space shuttle program, too. You know, the, I got to do a little bit of work with the guys that did the turbo pumps and all of the, you know, really fast-spinning, um, teeny-tiny mechanisms that work inside the shuttle to make it fly. And mm -hmm. so maintained a relationship with all of those folks down there. Uh, while I was working at Kennedy Space Center, too. And they were excited to see me. I don't know if they were excited to see me go. We won't say that. But they were excited that I was going to get to go off and do, you know, the job that that I would really want to do. Yeah, yeah. You already yeah. had an interest in it. Yeah. So what were you doing, I guess, when you first started? You said it was it was in operations. Yeah, I started. There were, there were two main groups in uh, the shuttle program at Kennedy. There was the shuttle operations and shuttle engineering. Hmm. And I started in shuttle operations, and I was an engineer in the orbiter processing facility, which is kind of, uh, it's like a big garage. It's like a hangar where the the orbiter part of the space shuttle would uh, be worked on to get it ready for flight and I had all these big like scaffolding all around it and I mean if you walked into that that facility and you didn't know where to look for the space shuttle you or for the orbiter you wouldn't see it somebody would have to point it okay it's above your head or it's behind that you know that piece <laughs> of structure that's wrapped around it I mean, it was wow. a really really great facility and um, and that's where I started right on that hangar floor and it was it was a lot like a, I call it more of a project management job, really, mm -hmm. uh, because we were responsible for just tracking through and making sure that all the work was done to get the orbiter out of that facility and moved over to the vehicle assembly building so it could be hooked up with the external tank and the solid rocket boosters and rolled out to the pad and you know launch from there. And yeah, it was great. I mean, it was great. Yeah. What? What? Um. Well, what was what was particularly interesting about the orbiter? I mean, it, it, it captured the hearts and minds of so many people for thirty years that it was yeah. flying. It was it was a beautiful vehicle. But what really struck you about this particular vehicle? Well, I think, and it still does now. When people ask me, like, to reflect on the kind of the legacy of it or mm -hmm. the the significance of it, I look at it like, uh, you know, a lot of things that, especially from an engineering side. You know, a lot of things that are designed where they want it to do five different things and they want to do all five things well, it usually doesn't happen. Usually three, two or three of those things are sacrificed a little and the other things are done okay. But, you know, kind of the design by committee thing mm. doesn't usually work that well. The space shuttle, I think, is just such a beautiful example of how that worked really well. I mean, it launches people to space, it took a significant amount of cargo to space, it could be used as a laboratory itself, you could live there, you know, in space for quite a while, and then we had these tanks you could strap on the back, you know, in the payload bay and make it stay up there longer, um, <laughs> could dock to space stations, I mean, all of these things that you could do with this vehicle that... Um, you know, I, I think it's going to be a long time before we see a spacecraft like that again. Um, now, there might be reasons why you would separate those things. So you do your people one way, you do your cargo one way, all of that. Sure. But, you know, in hindsight, when you look at the space shuttle and you see how just wonderfully it performed all of those things or supported crews to perform all of those things, I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> and then you landed on a runway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was After really, you know, human being, there should be that little wheel stop chirp, you know, and then the, the nose wheel down kind of thing. I think that's, 
Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> so when did you start switching your thought process to, this is interesting, I want to understand how these things fly, I want to work on the orbiter too, I want to fly in hmm. the orbiter? Yeah, I, I'm actually a little slow, I guess, because I worked at Kennedy for almost 10 years. Hmm. And it was probably um, eight years into that when I started thinking, hey, you know, what about this astronaut thing? And and that happened, I think, primarily because I had, uh, working there, I had the chance to to work in so many different places that were part of getting the space shuttle ready to fly. Um, and I, I think about some of my friends who had engineering jobs where like every three or four years, they would move to a whole new company so they could get experience doing something else. And I had that right at Kennedy Space Center. So I moved out of doing the job in the orbiter processing facility to being a project engineer on one mm. of the vehicles for a while, to being in the launch control center, to doing the convoy commander job on the runway with all the vehicles, you know, getting <laughs> the crew out and the vehicle back to the, the hangar again. So I got to see this just almost end to end of the process. And involved with that was seeing the astronauts come through and learning more about what they do and the kind of people they are and their backgrounds. And I realized, you know, it's like, you know, 99.9% .9 of an astronaut's job is not flying in space. Sadly, you know, yeah. and at least 80% of it, and that's probably low, was a lot like what I was doing already as a NASA engineer. Hmm. And so that just got me thinking, ah, oh, you know, so maybe the background, the experience I have would, you know, meet the requirements. And I still don't think I would have ever picked up the pen, and because you had to do that back then, it wasn't electronic, and to pick up the pen um, and fill out the application without the encouragement of a couple of people that I consider to be mentors at, at work. And... Um, and all those people did, I mean, all they said to me was, you know, they didn't say, oh, Nicole, you'll make the greatest astronaut there ever was, you know, kind of thing. They might not think that now. Mm -hmm. But um, the, they, what they said to me was, pick up the pen and fill out the application. And just hearing somebody else say it encouraged me to do it. Hmm. And I am so thankful to those people. When I see them, I thank them. <laughs> and I try to encourage others. I'm like, you know, because we, we try to think about you know, in a lot of cases, we don't have control over a lot of things. There's not a lot of things we can do to make something happen. But we have absolute total control over filling out the application. And it's amazing how we can just self-sabotage so many times. And, I, and, and young girls especially, I think, second-guess themselves mm -hmm. a lot. And I think just that kind of, okay, just pick up the pen. It doesn't, you know doesn't cost you anything, it doesn't hurt you, you know, yeah. you you have total control over doing that. So that push was definitely very helpful. What was your pitch when when during the interview process? What 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 did you say? This is why <laughs> I, I don't should be know. an astronaut. Oh, really? I don't know. You know, I don't they never really ask you that question directly. Huh. Uh, you know, they ask you questions about why you at least I remember from my interview, they asked questions about you know, why you would want to be an astronaut, you know, what excites you about it, what you know, inspired you to do it. Um, uh, maybe, maybe that why do you think you would be good comes through the questions of, you know, what your experience is all about mm. and, and that kind of thing. Um, I think the time I had at Kennedy Space Center was uh, invite. I mean, it was just key to, uh, to being ready to do this. And, and, you know, I didn't get selected. I was really fortunate to get an interview the first time I applied. 
and I didn't get selected. And I remember being, I was still at Kennedy working and uh, they were having one of the, like a flight readiness review or something for a space shuttle launch. And Dave Lietzma was there. Uh, he's a, an astronaut and he was the head of mm -hmm. the astronaut office at the time. And I knew him through interactions um, with the program at Kennedy. And so when the day came where they were going to be making all the phone calls that you normally get the phone call to get told, you know, yes. Because um, if you don't get a phone call, you're usually getting, you know, you get like a little email or something uh. <laughs> to tell you no. <laughs> but I was fortunate to be at Kennedy Space Center and uh, Dave was there and he tracked me down and he told me, uh, you know, sorry, Nicole, we're not, you know, we're not bringing you on this time. And, you know, here's me having to like not cry in front of him kind of thing because it's oh it's a little bit of, it's emotional you yeah. know even if you go work. into that thinking okay there's no chance you know just enjoy the interview process enjoy meeting all these people and just know you know thinking that it's not going to happen it's kind of like going out for cheerleading you might think you don't care if you don't get it but you, you kind of do and so he's telling me he's like well you know but we would really love it if you could come work for us at johnson space center out at Ellington Field and fly as a flight engineer on the shuttle training aircraft. And I'm like, and he said something like, um, we'd really like you to get some operations experience. And I remember thinking then, like, okay, don't say it out loud, but you've been working for 10 years in shuttle operations. What, is, what does he mean, you know? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so I, I ended up taking this job here at Johnson Space Center and out, I mean, imagine this, you know, you're a person who was inspired by wanting to know how things fly, wanting to fly yourself. And now after having this, you know, working hands on up close and personal with the vehicles themselves, now I'm gonna go get to have an office that's at an airport <laughs> and I'm gonna get to fly in T-38 jets and I'm gonna get to fly in the shuttle training aircraft and we'll maybe get a flight every now and then on the zero G airplane. I mean, it didn't seem like it could get any better. Yeah, but that was, the, I mean, you could have stayed there and probably been very happy, right? Even there, it seemed like that was like the dream. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think about it now. I'm like, actually, every single one of the jobs I had along the way, I would have been happy with for a long time. And I, I like thinking back now that I didn't really have... Um, I don't know, maybe I should admit it. There wasn't like a method to the madness. You know, it wasn't mm. like I was working as, you know, an engineer in the orbiter processing facility and I was stalking other jobs and, you know, around. I was like, ooh, I got to get my GS-14. You know, I was never doing that. It was just, oh, look, there's a job over in project engineering doing this thing now. It'll get me exposure to this other aspect of what goes on with getting spacecraft ready to fly. Oh, let's try for that. Yeah. And, and this, I mean... It was amazing. I think about it like it's kind of like being in the astronaut office or if you're training out at the neutral buoyancy lab. There's pe people in places where you work where um, it's just such a wonderful mix of like professional and personality, mm -hmm. you know. And when I do my presentations, I show this picture of our crew of the Expedition 21 crew. And it's when we had an overlap with um, crew changeover, like three crew members coming up before three went back. So we had nine on board. And it's when Guy La Liberté was up, up on station. He was a, he's like the owner, founder of Cirque du Soleil, and he was a spaceflight space participant. participant. And he considers himself a clown. So he brought us all these red clown noses. So we did these goofy crew pictures <laughs> with, you know, with the clown noses on. But I show it because, I mean, like, who are the people you want to work with? Mm. I mean, you want to work with the people that are going to have your back when it hits the fan, that mm -hmm. you know they trust that you'll have theirs. 
And then you want to work with people that you know you're going to have a good time with, too. And that's what I felt every step of the way. And then throw in out at Ellington, getting to fly on these really super cool airplanes, modified in ways that you would never want your normal airplane to be modified, and training astronauts to land the space shuttle. I mean, I really... I really didn't think it could get any, you know, any better than Honestly, that. Honestly, yeah. And I, I mean, you say maybe there was no method um, to your madness, but what it sounds like is the method was an opportunity presents itself and you seized it. You went for it. It sounds like, there, you know, you, I want to try this. I want to try this. Um, maybe maybe it was just, it, it wasn't maybe pre-planned, but maybe you had that, that kind of thought to... I should do, go do something else. I need. Yeah. I need to round this out. It's that. It's that drive. Yeah. I and maybe that was underlying. Maybe, maybe that was maybe. underlying it a little bit because, I think honestly, what I I tried to pay attention to was what I was enjoying, and uh, you know that started with flying. I guess you know I enjoyed flying. I enjoyed learning about flying. Um, that I think that introduced me to people and opportunities that maybe wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing, you know, working at, at Kennedy where, you know, I'm working in the orbiter processing facility, but you're seeing, you're meeting the people that are coming, you know, that you're tying into, okay, it's the vehicles moving from this place to the next place. And you've, you're just having that interaction and, and those opportunities present themselves. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. the call when you finally got it? I do remember the call. I, uh, that was the same day. Um, and so I was living here in Houston now. Um, that was the same day that I was getting ready to go. It was right before I headed out to go do my check ride for my instrument rating, for my pilot's license, hmm. uh, my instrument rating out here. And um, it was Bill Parsons who called me. And, uh, and I, I knew Bill from working at Kennedy, too. And so we had a long conversation. And at the end, Bill says, oh, and you can't tell anybody yet. <laughs> can't tell anybody now and I'm like what do you mean Bill I can't tell anyone and uh yeah we need to keep it hush hush because we're gonna you know make the announcement more around like an Apollo anniversary or something I'm like okay can I tell my family at least yes you can tell your family and so here I am now having to get in the car and go out to do a check ride with this flight instructor and I've got this grin like from ear to ear on my face and he's he's like most people come out here and they're a little you know hesitant they're a little worried about doing it flight like this and nervous and I'm like yeah I'm all those things but I'm also very excited about something too and I'll tell you like in a couple days or whatever and so yeah that was awesome wow yeah you had to hold it in yeah. oh my gosh um so tell me about the the training process you know this is this is another another exposure to more things you said you already had a nice round experience from your working at Kennedy and that was invaluable but what what was it training leading up to that first flight well, there, there's a lot of it. I mean, it starts out, of course, being a lot like going back to school, uh, mm. where you know they want you to learn all about the systems on the spacecraft you're going to fly. And for me at the time, that was going to be shuttle and you know potentially station, and then you know in parallel learning a little bit about the Soyuz uh, rocket because we were we were um, partnering with uh, our Russian partners to get um, to. To station and the possibility of flying and if I was going to station that would be a rescue vehicle so learning all about that mm. uh, Russian language training which I will tell you that was the most difficult part of astronaut training for me was to learn <laughs> another language uh, hear that a lot for I'll sure. tell you I you know some I blame my mom because some <laughs> somehow I made it all the way through university without ever not even the first Spanish class wow. nothing nothing I don't think that's possible these days but nothing and so when you're 40-ish trying to learn your first language that was your brain 
your brain does not support it. But <laughs> um, but it, it worked out. We have great instructors here. And, and then, you know, things like uh, how to do a spacewalk and how to fly the robotic arm and, you know, how to work in in a spaceship and um emergency training i mean it was all of the all of these things which um you know the people that train us the people that you're working with in mission control or on some of the other programs i mean you're getting exposure to every aspect of what you know life will be like in space but also what it takes to make it happen which i think is really really important for for astronauts to do to not just be kind of in a bubble of astronauty kind of training yeah. where that's just what you're doing, but really to be out and be part of the workforce that's, that's making it happen. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and you were already a part of it, too. That kind of that probably helped a little bit because you were coming from a different part of NASA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, I felt like it was kind of like every step of the way with the jobs I had with NASA, I felt like, oh, wow, how could this be better than what the job I was just doing? <laughs> Everyone seemed like it had something about it that was just, you know, it was growing on the last thing that I had done. And that's the way I kind of looked at the astronaut job, too, because in reality, there's no guarantee you'll ever fly. I mean, things could happen, what, whatever. There's not really a guarantee when you get selected as an astronaut that you'll fly. So, you know, for me, I love the job for that 10% of it that's, or that 99%, whatever, that's not flying in space, too. And I think that might have been a lot to do with having the, the NASA engineering job already. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I don't know, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I just feel so thankful to even have been considered because, yeah. um, you know, that job for sure out at Ellington, you know, at, at the time I'm thinking, what do you mean operations? I just worked for 10 years in shuttle opera. I mean, the day I got there, I knew, okay, this is what they mean. How do you work as a crew in a complex environment, like a real complex environment, mm-hmm. like uh, an airplane that's that's being used to train astronauts to land space shuttles and and in a T-38 jet and, and things like that. And so, uh, you know, when I got that job, that was 1998, and Steve Swanson got selected to be in the um, that astronaut class. And he had that job. So I took his, his seat. And then when I got selected, uh, a, a young man named Shane Kimbrough came in and took <laughs> that seat. And so I try to tell people, you know what? If you interview and you don't get selected and they offer you a job, you take it. Because <laughs> they, they have something they want to see. Yeah. And they know the place to put you to see it. And yeah. so, so you do it. Yeah. Well, let's get to the fun part. You said a lot of the job <laughs> is, is not flying in space. Let's talk about flying in space. What was it okay. like, that first flight? This was, this was 2009, and your first flight, I believe, was a long-duration mission. It was. Uh, my first flight was uh, Expedition 20 was mm-hmm. the and, and 21, so I overlapped two of the, the station expedition missions. I flew to and from that flight on a, a space shuttle, so up on the space shuttle Discovery with the STS-128 crew and home with STS-129, which is Atlantis. And I, that was so cool to do that, to be part of, 
you know, really to be like part of these different crews, yeah. all for one mission. It's funny when you look at the patches lined up, it looks like four different missions. And, and I guess in a way <laughs> it kind of is, but I'm like, no, it's like I got there this way. I got home this way. And these are all the people I got to work with in between. And and the the shuttle flight getting there, that's where I got to do the spacewalk that I did. That was with right. Danny Olivas, who was part of the 128 crew. And it was just really cool how that all kind of worked and blended together. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. you were so so much with the orbiter and Kennedy. Yeah. Now you were now you were there riding it, and you got yeah. to do too, right? You said you went up and discover, you went down in Atlantis. Yeah. Uh, you got this wide range of crews. You, you, we're talking shuttle expedition, expedition shuttle, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just this, it's this it, gigantic experience, and you get to do it for a long time. Yeah. So I mean, when you, what were the expectations going in, and then how? What was the reality like? Well, I'll just tell you, the expectations were high to, <laughs> to begin with. Yeah. But in, you know, and when I think about anything, I know we're on radio, but, you know, imagine my hand is like in front of my my face mm. here. That was the expectation. And then I can't reach my arm high enough for what <laughs> it really was. I mean, in every aspect of it, it, yeah. it didn't matter. And it's kind of like the fortune cookie thing. You know, you could just throw in space on the end of it. You know, I'm cleaning the toilet in space. You know, that's an awesome <laughs> thing to be able to to be able to do. And and it was, I mean, the overall experience, it was just like this, it, I think about it now, it's like just one big moment wrapped up, you know, together. Because yeah. people ask, oh, what was your favorite thing about it? And I, you know, certainly you can talk about, you know, what it feels like to fly, you know, to, to float just effort, effortlessly like that. That's amazing. And you know, the work we're doing up there, which is all about improving life on Earth. And I don't know, the view out the window, you cannot beat that. Um, it's an, It leaves an impression on you for the rest of your life. And and I think about it now, it's like all these complex things we do, you know, we, it, it takes a, it's really technically challenging to get a spacecraft with people on it safely to space and then to live and work on a space station and get safely home and all the science that's going on in between. And I came home, and maybe I'm just simple, but I came home with really three simple lessons, which were like, you know, we live on a planet. <laughs> you know, you look out the window, and there is no denying. It's like, oh my gosh, we are, we live on a planet in space together as Earthlings. You know, we're all Earthlings. That's another one. And then it, you, that the only border that matters is that thin blue line of atmosphere that blankets us all. And it's this reality check that just gets in you and sticks with you and just you know the, like the who and where we are in space together and yeah wish everybody could do it we were uh not too long ago we had a podcast episode with um frank white mm-hmm. about the overview effect and yes. we got to, we got to talking about that yeah he brought up your name specifically as yeah. someone who he believes based on the interview that you had with him that you were profoundly changed based on even what you're saying right now, you were profoundly changed yeah. the perspective. It, going up in space gave you a different perspective. Absolutely. And I think I, I, I can't imagine there's any astronaut who doesn't feel that in some way, maybe mm. isn't like actively expressing it the same, but uh, yeah, I, I, I believe it happens to everyone. Uh, there is, and there's this desire really to share it afterwards. I mean, I think we all want to share our spaceflight experience, right? You want, uh, I mean, I want the people who don't know there's a space station to know there's a space station and that, you know, for as long as my 17 year old son's been alive, there's been people from 15 different countries working together peacefully, successfully in space, um, doing amazing things to improve life here on earth. And, 
And I think we all find our way to communicate that. And that expression of what the perspective is, was, how it changes you, what influence it has, mm. I think that's part of sharing that experience. And, and it's something for me that's really, I think, profoundly important because um, I want people in their day-to-day -day lives to be reflecting like I do now on the fact that, oh my gosh, I live on a planet. <laughs> I'm an earthling. You know, this all this border stuff we're talking about, here's the one that matters, you know, that yeah. we share that we need to be, you no, know, it, managing. It is it does go <laughs> deep. You know, this the the phrase is simple. We live on a planet, but I can I can absolutely imagine it, it is it's it's what you're talking about is something so finite. What are you talking yeah. about is something more unified than maybe we are making it out to be culturally. So it's just yeah. it's it that that maybe the view gave you some perspective, maybe you, you talked about what we're doing is important too. You, mm -hmm. you think that space exploration is important, maybe for that reason, maybe for others. There's a bunch of other things we can talk about. Yeah. We talk about them a lot on this podcast for sure. But yeah, wanting to share that, I can see why that would be a drive for you. Yeah, yeah it really is. And um, I, you know, I wouldn't have strapped myself onto seven million pounds of exploding, you know, rocket fuel below me, <laughs> you know, with a seven-year-old son at home if I mm. didn't think, if I didn't honestly believe that what we're doing there is important. Mm -hmm. And um, and we need to we need to figure out more and more creative ways, which is what I love why you guys are doing this, you know, I, to, to share that experience. And, uh, you know, those three things about planet, earthling, thin blue line, I mean, those are facts that we all know. We all learn them some, I don't know, kindergarten maybe that we yeah. learn about planets first and that we happen to be on one. And, but I think we don't tend to think about it in our day-to-day lives all that much. And I think if we did, um, it's one of those things that can bring this whole perspective shift back to Earth, too, hmm. where you don't have to go to space to know these things. I, you can look up at the stars at night and feel the same way about kind of our place in the universe and be humbled by it and in awe and wonder and all of those things. Yeah. Did... um. You know, this thought process that you're explaining now is did that happen on your first space flight? Maybe your second? Maybe maybe you had the two space flight, came home, sat on it for a little bit, and then it hit you. Do you have, do you do you remember when? Um, I think during absolutely during the first one. Okay. Um, and then I think it's 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 one of those things that's uh, a little bit overwhelming, and uh, so there's a struggle to really kind of communicate it and 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 I probably still don't even communicate it very effectively but to find ways to to make it relatable mm. and that's why I think coming back to facts we all know is a nice way to do that you know to kind of say hey we live on a planet yeah oh well no duh you know yeah we live on a planet okay hey we live on a planet in space together you know, there's nothing better to, to think about what's, you know, that, hey, your local is global. You know, your neighborhood yeah. is a planet. Yeah. <laughs> and the, just the interconnectivity of it, the, you know, nothing that happens on this side of the planet doesn't affect the people on the other side or other life on, on it that we share it with. And, I mean, that's a huge thing to bring into, like, your reality and, right. and be thinking about regularly. So not to jump ahead from, from some of the other things you've accomplished, but it, this is, I think, the nice transition. You're talking about wanting to express that. How, how, do I, how do I tell this message? And even now you're saying, maybe I don't have the right words, yeah. but I know you're very into art. I know this is, a, this is a way for you to express 
this may be exactly what you're feeling. You have to find an outlet somehow. Maybe it's not speeches. Maybe it's not yeah. hour-long podcasts. Maybe it's something visual. So what do you try to put what, – what, what kind of art do you do and what do you try to put into it to say some sort of message? Well, I, most of my art that I do personally mm. is uh, – at this point is based on images that I took from space. Oh. And uh, Earth observation, some spacecrafty things too. But uh, and that all started really with um, I had the chance to paint while I was in space. So I did a watercolor painting on my first flight. Um, just brought up this watercolor kit because I thought it would be fun and be something to do that I like doing down on Earth. And uh, when I was thinking about retiring from NASA, which and from the astronaut, it was a very difficult decision to consider. Mm -hmm. And um, and in that, once I came with the warm fuzzy of, you know, yes, I, there are other things I, I want to do too, um, I kept coming back to that painting in space and thinking, okay, how do I uniquely share this experience? Hmm. And it, that painting was the kind of the key to me. I knew I was going to paint myself afterwards, but if I could paint and then engage with audiences that don't maybe think about what we're doing in space, you know, and at that point, really with the motivation of getting people to know what we're doing together in space and about how it's all about improving life on Earth. And there is this space station, you know, that, that art would be a way to do that, to, to reach audiences that might not know. But then I can tell you, they're the ones that are then, they got the app, spot station, ISS tracker on their phone. <laughs> and whether they liked my art or not, you know, they're, they want to know yeah. that they'll be able to see this thing now coming over, over their head and watch it and know there's six people on board there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really powerful thing. I think it's why stuff like this, podcasts mm -hmm. and other kind of creative outlets are really important for us um, sharing what's going on up there. Mm -hmm. But then it became um, something that, I now like really consider my mission in life. Like I discovered, rediscovered the, <laughs> the next mission, which fortunately allows me to tie my love for space exploration and art together. And, you know, and that's been with what we started out calling the Spacesuit Art Project, which um, started here in Houston in one hospital and has grown to uh, working with kids in over 45 countries now and painting. Um, just little paintings that these kids do. And then our spacesuit company, ILC Dover, has volunteered and they sew these suits together into art spacesuits. And thankful to the ISS program office too for allowing some of their discretionary cargo to be used for a couple of them that have made it to the station and back and wow. had exchanges with the kids that worked on them. And, you know, and these are children that are in, uh, you know, pediatric cancer centers, refugee centers. You know, really in places where you hope and pray it's the worst thing they'll ever go through in their entire lives. Hmm. And you come in with the inspiration of spaceflight, and then you throw a little art in the mix. And, you know, these kids are sitting up straighter. They're talking to you about their futures. It's like they're transcending that experience. It's not like they're being distracted. I mean, they really, in a very healthful way, are kind of getting lifted up out of there for a little while. Yeah. And, you know, and then to see their art become part of something that's bigger, that's part of something that other kids who might be going through a similar challenge as they are, um, it's really powerful. And uh, and to see anything in space is really amazing, too, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talk about, 
if you're if you're trying to engage kids, even we have programs here at NASA. You, a lot of them are more technical focused. You, mm-hmm. You're doing these education challenges. You're be, you're building rovers and and solving these puzzles. And, and there is a need for that, definitely. But absolutely. Where do you think, what, what kinds of gaps do you think art fills? You know, we have all these different avenues to have the STEM outreach thing. We talk about STEAM sometimes and, and adding in that art element. What, what do you think that adds to the perspective and, and, it, and maybe loops in people that otherwise wouldn't be looped in? Well, I think what it does, I do think it, it becomes a little bit more of an inclusive kind of activity, but mm-hmm. I think it allows whoever's participating to use their whole brain. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I think about it with my son in school, and I've watched it, um, especially with the STEM movement, which I'm I'm a total supporter of, but not at the expense of like arts and humanities and things. Sure. Um, but you'll see kids get kind of funneled one way because oh, this 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 boy's good at math or this girl is good at science, and then they just they want to funnel them this one way when it's like, hey, we need our kids to be problem solvers. And this creative element is really part of problem solving. And so even in these robotic competitions, what I like, even if they're just labeling it as a STEM activity, for the most part, I've seen they have to come up with their own mission patch or they have to kind of creatively describe what their robot is going to do or um, they maybe paint on it or draw, you know, something. And um, so I think there is... This is elements that way, but I think art is just this way to communicate complex things that we might not be able to otherwise. Hmm. Uh, we do it, it's embedded in science everywhere. I mean, look at those beautiful Hubble images that come back. I mean, I, I'm guessing if you flew out and looked at that nebula, it doesn't necessarily look like that to our naked eye, but the scientists need to learn and see something about it. So they color that image for what UV is there, or, mm. and then it's presented in this beautiful way that their brains understand yeah. too. You know, the ones and zeros can only go so far with us. I mean, you have to have, have it presented in a way that makes sense to us. And the artistic creative seems to do that a little That's bit better. That's right. Yeah, I like that idea of, of engaging a brain. Maybe you, you were talking about besides the rover competition, besides this, adding this artistic element, maybe it's visual, maybe it's otherwise. It seemed like there were elements of self-expression in there, being able to put yourself into some mission. It seems like there is elements of unification there where the team is coming up with something together, creating, you know, you put your idea down on this patch, but someone else puts their yeah. idea and now you're now you're a team. There's this there's certain elements there that maybe maybe the rover challenge by itself will fill in the gaps. You're using your whole brain, you're putting in these yeah. other elements. That's that's yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we do it here. We do it with our mission crews here. Yeah. Uh, you know, we design patches. We uh, lay out, you know, how we're going to run, like personally within our mission, run run it. Um, pretty much everything we're doing is about teamwork. So, hmm. you know, that's, that's important. And I think, you know, you talk about the self-expression. Um, the fact that it's like, you know, on the one hand, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, you have to do that. But on the other hand, it's like <laughs> so good for them. You know, yeah. the kids, when they're doing these projects and they always have to present it, you know, they always have to present it. And to be able to present something technical like a robot, a rover, a, a science experiment, whatever it is, to an audience that might be your parents or teachers from other schools or the local community, they have to think creatively about how they're going to do that too. They just can't put up the drawing of their rover and say, here's what it does. They, right. they have to 
you know, creatively communicate it, which is really fun to see too, how yeah. they do that. It seems like creativity is the, is the word that I'm hearing a lot when it comes to, you know, if, if we're thinking about artistic expression, maybe filling in that creativity. Yeah. But I mean, I know creativity is is part of, you said, problem solving. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a big one. You know, yeah. I, we even see it even today. I, I think one of, one of my... Uh, one of the stories I like to tell is I was I, so I do commentary in Mission Control. I did okay, I yep. did one for um, for a spacewalk where during the spacewalk they inadvertently lost a blanket, mm-hmm. but they needed to cover something up. So everybody came together. They had another blanket that they took off in the same spacewalk, and they creative like a, a team on the ground came together and said, "How can this blanket fit in this space that it wasn't supposed to?" Right. And so they had to open up their entire brain and think, "How can we do this?" Because it wasn't meant to do that, and they had to come up with all of the procedures on the fly and i just think that is that's one of the most brilliant things that i think has happened definitely in my career for for seeing what nasa engineers are capable of yeah it's i mean it's all around us here there's no doubt and then you know on the space station just going to that other end of like art and music and creativity i mean for the the very first days of spaceflight art has been there you know Alexei Leonov with his colored pencils doing orbital sunrises and you know and every single astronaut whether they were a photographer or not before they flew they become one um and musical instruments you know I think on station now what there's a keyboard there's at least one guitar there's a flute you know Chell Lindgren brought up what he brought up his bagpipes with him you know you got to love your crewmate if they're gonna let him play bagpipes on the station and you know i had karen nyberg oh my gosh karen the most talented artist i've ever met in my life and that's everything you know drawing painting musical instruments i i'm incredible her dad is a really wonderful artist too and her mom taught her to sew when she was really young and she did quilt squares on station and sewed a little stuffed dinosaur for her son out of scrap you know trash material that was up there i mean i think it's really about you know, we are we we are talking about human spaceflight, and these are human things to be doing. I mean, it's it's part of who we are. And if we're going to be living there, you're not just going to be doing the technical work. You're you have to have an outlet yourself for um, you know the way you're going to remember the experience and how you're going to share it with others. So, what do you think is the right balance then there's a lot of technical work there's a lot of studying a lot of different things that you as an astronaut have to memorize and know and and be aware of and there's a certain way of thinking so how do you balance this technical this logical way of thinking with the creative and and that form of self-expression where's the balance there well you know i i don't know if this is the answer you're looking for but i i mean had the opportunity to sit on the other side of the table when it comes to selecting astronauts um before retiring and i think you know i think when a person gets to that point where they're coming for an interview, you already know that they've satisfied the educational requirements to be there. Their jobs, you know, did what they needed to do for them to be qualified to be there. But what you're looking for is, okay, what, who is this person? What, you know, what do they enjoy doing? How do they apply what they've learned in school and how they work to real life? I mean, what, what is their, who, who are they as a whole person too? And so you want to know about their rock climbing or their art that they do or the volunteer work they do at Habitat for Humanity or I mean whatever it is there's some aspect of that human being that is outside of the technical school they did and the technical job that they had Um, because at this point we're just not 
we don't have enough flights. We don't have enough spacecraft to, you know, open up the um, the pool of who we interview. I mean, mm-hmm. that's going to happen. I think we've already we just we keep expanding that. And uh, you know, at this point, we've got to find those things in the people that that we're hiring to be astronauts. And uh, and I think they're out there. I mean, I I don't doubt that every astronaut in some way is has this creative they might not say it that way but they're doing something that is not what you would normally think of as technical huh well at the time of that we're going to release this recording some of the astronaut candidates will have graduated to be astronauts and they're going to start looking ahead towards towards flying here soon what advice do you have for them as they start getting ready for some of their first flights well, I certainly have to keep up with what whatever training they have you going through and, and take advantage of it. Um, you know, there'll be opportunities where an extra sim comes up and you could get in it and see oh, what's the day in the life of life on whatever spacecraft they might be flying on is going to be like. And the opportunity to work with different people. I mean, really take advantage of the opportunity to work with different people. Get to know your ground team. I mean, absolutely know the people that are going to be mission control for you, know and remember the people that trained you. I, I mean, really, that um, helped prepare you to to get to the point of being assignable. <laughs> um, and, you know, pay attention to, um, I, I think about this like from a family standpoint. Um, one of the things that my husband and I tried to do, because our son was so young when I flew the first time, is we wanted him to feel like he was part of the crew. So whenever I could get him out to a training event or to meet the people I was flying with or any of that, I would do that. And that gives them a connection to the experience you're going to have when you're, when you're away in space. And so to not forget that those kinds of things are important as well. And those, I think all of those things really are kind of the human side of it is um, – and that, that makes me think back to that paint kit that I took to space. I mean, I was so focused on my first flight to making sure my checklists were together and that I knew what my tasks were going to be and I had all the information to do that. I mean, I am so thankful to Mary Jane Anderson, who was my flight crew equipment um, support person, who said, hey, Nicole, you know, you're going to be living up there. You know, think about what you'll do in that spare time, which won't be a lot. You know, you're busy, but there will be spare time. You're living there. Is there stuff that you might be able to take with you that you could use up there. And I would I would tell people to consider that, you know, consider that you'll be living there too and you you want to appreciate that time as well. Wonderful. Nicole, this was a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time for coming on the podcast. For me too. Today. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Hope you enjoyed this great conversation we had today here with Nicole Stott. Check out some of our other episodes of Houston We Have a Podcast at nasa.gov slash podcasts, along with some of the other podcasts we have across NASA in other areas such as uh, planetary science and some of the stuff they're doing at Jet Propulsion Laboratory and Kennedy Space Center. We've got a bunch of them now, so check them out there, nasa.gov slash podcasts. You can go to social media and talk to us on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. 
This episode was recorded on December 9th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Greg Wiseman, and Gordon Andrews. Thanks again to Nicole Stott for taking the time to come on the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Give us a rating and some feedback on whatever platform you're listening to to tell us how we did. We'll be back next week.